I don't know how many of you have read the uh, Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. They were a favorite of my children. The truth is I like to say that because it was an excuse to read it to them. They were a favorite of mine. And though Lewis did not intend for it to be a theological treatise, I think there is much great theology that is packed into those stories. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you remember that the four little travelers found themselves in this strange land called Narnia. And they have met some strange friends. And uh, they are in conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they are concerned about their friend, Mr. Tumnus, who has been snatched away by the police. What will they do to him, Mr. Beaver? asked Lucy. Well, said Mr. Beaver, you can't exactly say for sure. They've taken him to her house, and there's not many taken in there that ever comes out again. Statues, all full of statues, they say it is, in the courtyard and up the stairs and in the hall. People she's turned, he paused and he shuddered, turned into stone. But Mr. Beaver, said Lucy, can't we, I mean, we must do something to save him. It's too dreadful, and it's all on my account. I don't doubt you'd save him if you could, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. But you've no chance of getting into that house against her will and ever coming out alive, her being the wicked queen. Couldn't we have some stratagem, said Peter? I mean, dress up as something or pretend to be old peddlers or anything or, or watch till she was gone out or, ah, oh, there must be some way. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move. Oh, yes. Tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them with the mention of his name. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the wicked queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Oh, Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. Oh no, he'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. The sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm, I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, 
I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Oh, he is the king. And we've committed ourselves in this Thanksgiving month, or should I say I've committed us, to a study of giving thanks. Giving thanks to the king. Each Sunday taking a different look at this this important notion of thanksgiving. What does it mean to be a people who are thankful and who, who express their thanks? Putting Words to thanks is so important. You've perhaps heard the story of the couple that was sitting with the marriage counselor. 20 years of marriage. And the wife says to the counselor, he doesn't love me anymore. And the husband in frustration says, you know I love you. I told you 20 years ago on our wedding day that I love you. And if that changes, I'll let you know. It's critically important that we put words to our expressions of thanks, our feelings of thanks, our emotions of thanks. Does God know that we're thankful? Of course he knows that we're thankful. He knows our hearts. But the expression is important. The writer of Hebrews says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Praise and thanks are are synonymous terms often in Scripture. The fruit of lips, he goes on to say, that openly profess His name. And really the expression of thanks is essential to us as creatures. Does God need our thanks? Not at all. He desires our thanks. Do we as the created need to give thanks? Yes. Yes, we do because it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of our proper place in life. Now, I know that this is going to come as a shock to you, but, but I struggle sometimes with, with being cynical. But, but I want you to know I'm working on it. I've got it down. I, I'm not cynical more than once or twice an hour each day of my life. And I get a little cynical, I have to admit, about Thanksgiving Day, that holiday that's coming up in less than two weeks. Don't get me wrong. I love Thanksgiving Day. I love the celebration. Love the time together. Love what it stands for. I think it's important that we, that we mark our blessings with the day on the calendar. But here's the deal, friends. Thanksgiving, as the people of God, ought to be a lifestyle. Every day we ought to feast. Now, maybe we'd get a little tired of turkey or ham, but we could change that up. Every day. In the life of a believer is Thanksgiving Day. Every single day of this month, every single day of next month, and the month after, and on it goes. We are a people for whom Thanksgiving should be a lifestyle. It is the way that we live. God's people, more than any others on this planet, ought to be folks who express thanks in abundance. It's our way of life. 
We might even call it thanks living because that's really what it is. It's what we're called to. 14th century German mystic once said, if the only prayer that God's people ever say in their entire lives is thank you, it will be enough. So true. So true. So last week we read from Romans 1. It's our primary text for this series. And you remember the Apostle Paul identifies a lack of giving thanks to God as one of two ways that he says that humanity has suppressed the truth about God. And he refers to that as godlessness and wickedness. If you remember our reading from Romans 1, we're going we're to read it again together. And godlessness and wickedness, Paul says, results in God's wrath toward humanity. He said, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And we saw that phrase as being a key to understanding the importance of, of gratitude and being a people who give thanks to God. And we talked about how, how glorifying God and giving thanks to God are, are really like two sides of a coin. You remember? What does it mean? Anybody bold enough to sound it out? What's it mean to, to glorify God? What are we talking about when we, when we talk about glorifying God? It's a phrase that we use often in Christian circles. What does it mean? To give glory to God means, anybody remember? It's, it's worship, yes, but it's, it's, it's even more than that because sometimes we, we kind of compartmentalize our lives into worship and non-worship. But to glorify God, you remember, it's, it's say again, everything. Yeah, it's, it's giving God his place. The old Hebrew word has the sense of the vastness of God, the hugeness of God. God is, God is big. And, and therefore, he is deserving of glory and praise and recognition in every place that is his. Paul talks about God being the creator in our text. So is there anything that isn't his since he's the creator? No. And so to give God glory is to give God recognition and praise in every place that belongs to him. And that means in all of life. Everything that we do, everywhere that we are, every scenario that we find ourselves in, every conversation that we are a part of, we are striving to give him his rightful place. I think I've told you the story of my boys when they were younger. Jordan was a, in a phase when he was into really big trucks and commented on a huge one that he saw one day. And, oh, that's a big truck. And, of course, his theological brother Luke said, oh, not as big as Jesus. Now, I'm not sure what the bigness of Jesus, you know, what, what that was in, in the mind of Luke, but he had it right. Not even the biggest truck is as big as Jesus. Paul is saying that, that the hugeness of God, the wonder of God as creator, as creator of the world and the creator who is in his world, it should provoke a response of worship and a desire to give glory, to recognize God for who he is. Paul says that's what should happen. It should provoke human beings to give God glory. And his point is because it is indeed God's world. 
And there is no place that he doesn't belong. There is nothing that is good for which he does not deserve credit and honor and praise. It's his rightful place. So, we as God's people have got to be vigilant in giving thanks to him, in giving glory to him. It has to be something that we are working to cultivate in our lives. Because I think that the mark of sin on us, the fact that we are fallen and broken people, can easily cause us to see things through a lens of ingratitude. And whereas God on his throne as sovereign creator, as sovereign ruler over all of life, even its brokenness, sovereign rule over our lives, even in our brokenness, is cause for, for praise. It is cause for thanks. You're looking pretty excited about this concept. Whew! Let's stand. You need some exercise, some blood flow. Here we go. We're going to read from Romans 1 again this morning. Let's read together. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Karen, let's put verse 20 back up, and we'll leave it there for a while. Listen again to what Paul says here. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made as creation, so that that folks are without excuse. Paul is saying that, that the creation of the world displays God's eternal power. And divine nature. They're there for all to see. And, and because they are, humanity has no excuse from God's perspective for neglecting to glorify him and to give him thanks for the display of who he is that is before them on a regular basis. Martin Luther, in his work called A Small Catechism, which is not small at all, Uh, in the first article titled Creation, says this. He says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? Answer, I believe that God has created me and all that exists, that he has given and still preserves to me my body and soul, my eyes and ears, and all my members, my reason, all the power of my soul, together with food and raiment, home and family, and all my property. 
that he daily provides abundantly for all the needs of my life, protects me from all danger, and guards and keeps me from the evil. And that he does this purely out of fatherly and divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me, for all which I am in duty, bound to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. Brothers and sisters, does does the wonder of creation just move you? Does it it awe you? That's that's its design. Paul is saying that the the size and the grandeur, the, the detail, the beauty, the overwhelming majesty of creation, it it should awe us and elicit from us thanks. Great thanks. Why? Why? Because because as Luther said, he's given us eyes and ears. And and, and we get to see it. We get to experience it. We get to, to, to be impressed by it. Paul says that Creation reveals God's eternal power. He's saying that, that God created it by His power and He sustains it with the same power. Now, I did a little Googling this week. I'm always fascinated to, to learn about the size of things. So tell me, how much power does it take to create and sustain 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's the best estimate. Oh, and that, by the way, is just the Milky Way galaxy. Astronomers speculate that there are probably millions of galaxies. I love what John Piper says about what some of his scientific non-believing friends referred to as wasted space in the universe. Now, John, you mean to tell me that there's this vast, enormous space and the focus of God, if there is a God, is that this little tiny speck, not even dust size, in the midst of this vast space. And you mean to tell me that that, that is what God is all about? And their comment is, that seems to me an incredible waste of space. To which Piper says, you know, if it were about me, you'd be right. But it's not about me. It's about the one who created it. It is not a waste of space. It is grand. It is amazing. How much power do you think it takes to create and sustain 326 million cubic miles of water on planet Earth. That's a big bathtub. That translates to about 352 quintillion gallons. One quintillion, by the way, has 18 zeros behind it. I mean, if your mouth's not hanging open, you're not listening. This is not a small piece of work that he has done. Creation is there to awe us and to amaze us and to cause us to just stand there and go, wow, wow. The sheer vastness of creation points 
to a power that is beyond our mind's ability to grasp. And yet, we have been given senses to experience and enjoy the beauty and the power that has created that beauty. And that, my friends, is cause for thanks, according to Paul. John Calvin, commenting on this Romans text, says, By saying that God has made it manifest, he means that humans were created to be spectators of this formed world. I love that. And that the eyes that were given them, so that they might, by looking at this beautiful picture, be led to the author, to the creator himself. Do you ever see that silly movie called Joe versus the Volcano? It is a dumb movie. (laughs) But it's just got some great spiritual themes in it. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, they're out searching for meaning in life. If you haven't seen this, you really have to see it. But there's that one scene where, where Joe is, is, is adrift in the ocean. And, and once again, he's floating on his enormous luggage that he has brought with him. That's a story in and of itself. You'll have to see the movie. And, and, and he's just about giving up hope when, when in the middle of the night, the moon rises on the horizon in front of him. It's an awesome scene in the movie. And he just kind of staggers to his feet and he says, Oh God, whose name I do not know, thank you for my life. That is the power of creation. It speaks to something much larger and grander than we are. Something that we can't even begin to get our minds around, but we know that there is an awesomeness there. There is a power there that is way beyond us. Creation reveals God's eternal power in a big way. And Paul says that it also reveals God's divine nature. His eternal power and his divine nature. So what does it reveal about the divine nature of God? It's interesting when you read all the commentaries on some of this, the uh, the words in this text, they don't do a whole lot with that phrase. So I'm going to tell you what it means. I think it speaks volumes about the imagination and the creativity and the love for variety that our God has. Could you have thought this up? Probably not. Not even on your best day. Did you know, back to Google, that there are 100,000 species of trees on the earth? Why is that? I mean, I have a dozen to do the trick. 100,000 species of trees. Why is that? Why are there 20,000 species of fish? Why are there 15,000 species of mammals? Why are there 10,000 species of birds? And how about this? One million species of insects. And some zoologists estimate that there are probably another million out there that we just haven't discovered yet. Why is this? Two words, my friends. Creativity and imagination. Creativity and imagination. What a God we have. You know, numbers of times in the scripture, 
starting with, with Moses and Miriam and Exodus and then on through the Psalms and into the prophets, the question is often asked, who is like you, O God? What a God we have. Once again, you are looking pretty fired up about this truth. I love what Ben Patterson says in his book called Waiting. He says, God is up to something so big, so unimaginably good, that your mind cannot contain it. Creation gives us a glimpse of this imaginative, creative mind of God, which, by the way, is ever creating, ever bringing life, ever giving vitality. And it will be that way for all of eternity. You know, don't mistake the reading of Genesis as God kicked back on the seventh day and put his feet up. No. That is more a statement about created order for humanity than it is about the nature of God. Our God does not rest. He is life itself. He is creative. He infuses everything with energy. The creative work of God. One other thing that I think is is implied in what Paul is is saying in our text, and certainly we we read into that text with with the the aid of, of other texts in Scripture, and that is this. It is thanksgiving to God for the goodness of God. For the goodness of God. As God's people, we, we believe that God is good, yes? Yeah, yeah, we, we do. We, we talk about that a lot. We often say that, that God is good, and all the time, God is good. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is good? How is he good? Is he, is he good like a good day? Is, is God good perhaps like a good cup of coffee? Is he good like good weather? Is he good like we think of good grades? What's the word here? Turn and ask your neighbor that. What do we mean when we say God is good? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, we ready? It's a lot of buzzing. Hey, by the way, before I forget, there should be some of the little stickies on your row somewhere or another. And uh, remember, the goal is we're, we're filling the walls with things that we're thankful for. So, you know, take one or two or three dozen of these and start filling them out and just stick them all over the walls. The goal is a sanctuary just covered with the praises and the thanks of God's people. Anyway, back to God is good. What, what do we mean by that when we say God is good? Okay. Come from your neighbor. Okay, excellent. The standard, the standard of good. Okay, I like that. What else? Righteous. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Righteous. What else? Or or we try to be, right? (laughs) Good, good, good. Okay, what else? No bad at all. Ethel, that is, if we really stop and think about that, That is profound. No 
bad at all. Not even a bad thought. And, and, and again, that's, that's where the, the standard of good comes from. The definition of good, dictionary, morally excellent, virtuous, righteous. Here's what's interesting. If, if you do a little bit of, of sleuthing on the origin of the word, in the English language, they, they find that, that some of the earliest Sanskrit had the meaning of to cling to. The idea of good, or the idea of goodness is, is to cling to. We would perhaps say it this way, that God's goodness clings to him. God's goodness clings to him. When we speak of God's goodness, we need to understand it not as something that God chooses to be. That's what you and I have to do. God doesn't choose to be good. He is good. God's goodness is what he is. When we say that God is good all the time, it is because he cannot be otherwise. And and I don't know if this hurts your brain like it does mine, but... But we can be otherwise. Well, I mean, at least you can. I, I, I can't. But God cannot be otherwise. Every inclination, every thought, every action, every motive comes from the nature of God, which is pure goodness, perfectly sinless. Which means that all that he does comes from a purely good nature a perfectly sinless nature. Yeah? Make sense? What that means is that when God created all that he created, it was perfect because he is perfect goodness. It flowed from his nature. It also means that that his desires and his actions for us and in our lives are perfectly good because they flow from him who is perfect goodness. He cannot do anything for us that is not perfectly good in nature and purpose because that is who he is. He never has to decide what is best. You know, as some of my friends up in Maine say, well, I'm going to have to ponder that a little bit. God never ponders. He does. He acts. He speaks perfectly good in all that he acts and does, and speaks. Think of the creation story. God created, and he saw that it was? Well, of course it was. What else could it be? Bad? Not my best effort. Let me try again. God created and saw that it was good. Romans 8.28. We love that verse, don't we? God works all things together for the of those who love him. Well, of course he does. He's going to work it together for the bad? Going to work it together for, you know, eight out of ten days? It'll be good? No. All that God does is, is good, and that is because he is perfect goodness. He can be no other than who he is. So, conclude in a minute here. I think this is important for us to wrestle with and to grasp, and to maybe even verbalize with with one another, to be reminded that, that God is good, and it's not our version of goodness. 
It's not a comparative standard. It's, it's the original. It is the standard by which everything else has to measure up to. Often we give thanks to God, and that is really important. But I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps what we need to do is spend more time giving thanks to God for who he is. We spend a lot of time giving thanks to him, appropriately so, for what he does in our lives and for the blessings. But my friends, what he does and those blessings flow out of who he is. And, and that's, that's where the, I think the, the, both the challenge and the, the glory and the wonder of it is, is because my life isn't the same as your life. My blessings aren't the same as your blessings. My struggles aren't the same as your struggles. And, and life that we live in this fallen world is full of both what we think are great moments and then moments in the valley. That's why we so often read some of those old Puritan prayers from the valley of the vision. Because the Puritans believed that it was in those places that we understand as low and difficult and hard and challenging in life that we see the goodness of God so often like none other. God's goodness. Do you ever spend time thanking God for himself? Thanking him for who he is? I think there can be a hesitation in this because we're fallen creatures. Yes? And and so... We, we enjoy when people give thanks and praise to us for something good that we've done. But in the backs of our mind is, is this little shadowy thing that says, oh, if you only knew. You know? God never has that impulse. You know, we don't give praise and thanks to Him, and our Heavenly Father doesn't sit there and think, well, I, you know, that's, that's enough. Because tomorrow I probably won't be as good. You know? I'll screw up sometime. No. We take all these human limitations and all these human perspectives on these things and we just have to throw them out because he is the standard. He is perfect goodness. So, praise team, why don't you come ahead and and get ready to lead us as we respond this morning. Oh, my brothers and sisters, may we begin to understand more and more not only the importance of giving thanks to God, and we're going to get more specific as we move into these last couple Sundays of the month, the things that we need to be thankful for, but I think foundational to that is that we give thanks to God for God. Who among you, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? The, the, the question that is asked throughout Scripture. Our God is like no other. He is who He is, and He can't be otherwise. You know? Mr. Beaver was right. He is not safe at all. But he is good. He is perfectly good. Amen.